Grebis is one of the most powerful novels you can read about war and how it destroys the lives of uh, ordinary people. The beauty of the novel is its understated way of narration and uh, thoughtful imagery. It was written by Ukrainian author Andrei Kurkov in Russian and uh, wonderfully translated by Boris Drelyuk. In this episode we speak to Boris Drelyuk about uh, translating prose as a poet, editing Andrei Kurkov and uh, the novel Grebis. Boris Drelyuk is the author of uh, My Hollywood and other poems and the translator of Isaac Babel, Andrei Kurkov Maxim Osipov and other authors His poems translations and criticism have appeared in the NYRB the TLS the New Yorker and elsewhere Among many other awards he won he received the 2022 Greg Barrios translation prize from the National Book Critics Circle Formerly editor in chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books He is currently an associate professor of English and creative writing at the University of Tulsa. He holds a PhD in Slavic languages and literature from UCLA where he taught Russian literature for several years. You can buy Grebis using the link given in the show notes. Welcome Boris, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Now, you were born in Odessa, Ukraine. And uh, please tell us about uh, Odessa and its people. Well, uh, I'm I'm very glad that that you began there because that's of course where I began and uh in in some ways although I left long ago when I was 8 years old, I really never left. Um I still feel that I dwell with one foot uh in Odessa and um uh the reason for that is is that it made an amazing uh, amazingly um uh deep impression on me uh, uh the the city uh was uniquely diverse uh uniquely uh um active under soviet rule it was on the very edge of empire it also was on the very edge of of the the russian empire and so it was far from the centers of power and uh, uh some of the most famous of course writing about odessa is uh concerns the activity of of uh less than let's call them uh, ethical people gangsters and uh and uh shysters and people looking for to make a quick buck as we say in the United States and uh i i think that that uh uh spirit of of ingenuity uh, the entrepreneurial spirit um and the slight bit of danger uh that kind of lingers in the air those those were very very uh, important for me when i was a child i i um really enjoyed that atmosphere and I continue to enjoy it when I translate work by Odessan authors. Uh, I should also say that the city was historically uh, um had a very large Jewish population and because it's a relatively new city uh in in uh that region it was founded in the late 18th century um uh unlike some other major centers of 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 Jewish life uh in eastern and central Europe uh the Jews were there from the start. And so um uh, I come from a Jewish family we felt much more at home in odessa than perhaps we would have felt in other parts of the soviet union uh were there any influences in your formative years towards literature poetry certainly i mean i think one of my 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 first memory of of uh, um 
an encounter with poetry. Now, my, 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 my mother read poems to me all the time. It's very typical uh, in uh, uh, Eastern European and Central European households to read poetry to children at a very young age. So I, I was in, in, uh, uh, exposed to poetry before I was conscious of it as poetry. But my first sense of what a poet was, uh, um, was uh, I think I have a very distinct memory of this. I was sitting in, in a little library, uh, which is not far from, from our house, which is, of course, at the time, uh, a Soviet library, a communist library, and there was a mural on the wall. And on the mural was this enormous, beautiful, a well-shaped man in a sailor's t-shirt. Uh, and uh, he had a, a bald head and he had one hand uh, placed on his heart and the other hand thrown back as if he was claiming something of great importance. And that was a portrait of Mayakovsky, of, of uh, Vladimir Mayakovsky. Now, I have, you know, I have mixed feelings about Mayakovsky as a as a poet, but it was very important for me to see this uh, the, the 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 very size of him as a poet. It, it it created the impression for me that poetry was something worth shouting uh, uh, at the top of your voice, and um, uh, that was my first um, kind of heroic uh, experience uh, uh, understanding the the role of poetry in the world. Could you tell us about uh, your first experience of learning English? Sure. Yes. Yes. So, so as I as I mentioned, I I, I emigrated uh, with my family at the age of eight. Before we left, this was this was 1991, and at this time, many many people were leaving the Soviet Union uh, as refugees, and uh, we were part of that wave of refugees leaving the Soviet Union. Um, uh, the uh, the life. In Odessa became more dangerous than it had been before. Uh, the, the, the economic system was collapsing. Uh, everyone sensed that the end was near uh, for the Soviet empire. And uh, a lot of people, this being Odessa, took advantage of uh, uh, the situation and offered English classes to people who were soon to immigrate. And I, uh, I was uh, enrolled in one of these classes. The, the class was uh, obviously taught by people who did not speak English. I mean, that was clear to everyone uh, within five minutes. Um, but they, they kept us there for an hour. And what they managed to do was to, to, uh, to teach us hello, the word hello. And then they had a little book, uh, a little guidebook of the United States. And they taught us all the state flowers of the states to which we, we plan to immigrate. So I learned the word poppy, which was the state flower of California. And uh, those were my those. That was my first uh, taste of English. Uh, when we when we uh, finally did immigrate, when we landed in Los Angeles, I realized that uh, that my my uh, vocabulary was insufficient. Uh, but luckily, at that age, at eight, nine, you know, um, our brains are sponges, and I was able to soak up through television and through uh, through school. I was able to soak up quite a, quite a lot of English quite quickly. You are brought up in Hollywood. That's right. You lived there for a long time. I lived there for some 30 years, yeah. How did it shape your literary temperament living in Hollywood? Well, that's a wonderful question, and I think we, we probably would need more than an hour for me to, to, to tease out a proper answer to that. But what people uh, often don't understand about Hollywood unless they live there is that it really is a small town. It feels like a like a village, although it's a... Uh, it's the the capital of of entertainment for the entire world. Uh, at the same time, it, it's a place where people 
live very ordinary lives. And I think that uh, for me, the mix of grandeur and uh, um, uh, self-aggrandizement with this steady daily life that I saw around me, the, the contrast between these two things, the, the regularity and the, the mundane nature of, of life in Hollywood contrasted with the great image of Hollywood in the world. Those, uh, that contrast is very poignant and, and, uh, interesting for me. It, it continues to, to inspire, uh, my poetry and, um, uh, I, I feel like the message that I want to give, give the world, uh, about Hollywood is that it's a, it's a real place where people live and, uh, every place has its own myth and every place has its own reality. And, uh, we, we, we do, we do, uh, justice to a place when we, uh, are able to pick both the myth and the reality. So, is my Hollywood and other poems is your uh, first published book? Uh, my first book of poems, uh, my my first book of original poems, absolutely, yes, yeah. So, what was the theme? I think it's elegiac. Uh, I, I I don't know whether there's a real uh, 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 central theme, but uh, but if I were to say uh, a few words about the contours of the, the the thematic contours of the book it's really a book about um uh, honoring uh, what is gone what is uh, uh what has been replaced what has been effaced and doing a little bit of uh monument building to things that don't usually uh don't usually uh merit monuments so from poetry to translation uh, when did you decide that you want to get into translation seriously well, I think that uh, uh, that that uh, decision uh, was made for me uh, when I was uh, a teenager. Um, uh, when I when I was uh, uh, when I was a fresh immigrant, uh, when we had just arrived, I was really quite embarrassed by by the fact that I spoke another language. I really wanted to to forget everything that I knew about Russia and everything that I knew about the old country, and uh, to plunge directly into the mainstream, to be accepted as a uh, as a proper American, and um, uh, and so I, I neglected my Russian for a few years. But when I uh, uh, turned thirteen, fourteen, I realized that uh, I was actually uh, uh, doing myself no favors. That uh, in fact Russian was a great resource, and I and I should I, sh- I should brush up on what I knew and, and build on it. But I didn't know exactly how to go about doing it because there were no classes uh, in the language, obviously, at at, at, the, at my high school. And I asked my mother. My mother said that I should read poetry. Now, the reason she recommended poetry uh, was that uh, Russian has dynamic stress. So when you encounter a word on the page, you you really don't know where the emphasis falls. You can mispronounce it very badly uh, if you've never heard it pronounced before. And um, with poetry, most poetry written in Russian was written in metrical forms, uh, so that uh, the, the words have to fit, uh, a, a set of stresses. And that gave you a clue as to how the word was actually pronounced. And, uh, so, uh, it was very good advice on a practical level because then I, I would know not only what a word meant, but, but also how, how it was to be spoken. Uh, but as soon as I started reading, I, I fell, I fell so deeply in love with the poems that I encountered, uh, that I began almost, uh, unwittingly, almost without intent, translating them trying to find english phrases that matched the beauty of the russian 
And uh, I did that because I wanted to share them with some of my friends, uh, these poems. And uh, I've been translating ever since. Being a poet, do you think uh, it makes you more sensitive towards reading and translating prose? Yes, I think so. I, I think, uh, I'm not sure whether it makes me more sensitive, but I think that my sensitivity probably makes me both a poet and a translator who pays close attention to the rhythm of, of whatever prose I'm translating. Um, I, I have a very uh, um, uh, almost painfully uh, uh, sensitive ear uh, for language and, and uh, for the rhythms of language. And until I get a phrase exactly right, both in terms of its sense, but also in terms of its music, I really can't go on. And uh, uh, I think that that works very well when translating a short poem. It makes translating prose a lot more difficult uh, at the first draft stage. But um, but the results are probably at least a little bit better for people like me. It may not matter to the most readers, but but readers like me, I hope, will appreciate the the amount of work that goes into translation especially when we don't read the original yes yes exactly we don't know what kind of a rhythm that you are transporting from russian to english that's right and and you have to be able to trust the translator to to do something uh, to, yeah exactly to, to to do something special poetry is more of uh, instinct yes you get into that mood probably you start writing and you finish it mhm but when it comes to translation uh, you are trying to be very careful uh, reading the original and it's more of a i would say if i may have to use the word it's a meditative deliberation um, is it not a dichotomy i i love that question it's a very interesting proposition and i think that there is some truth to it but i would also argue that when writing poetry at least the way that i write it and that's it's not it doesn't hold uh, for for every poet you'll ask but certainly for me i found this to be the case i am deliberating uh as i write so yes there is this uh, there is an instinct and there's also the discovery of putting words down on paper not knowing exactly where a poem will lead you um and even if you do know where the poem will lead you part of the trick of writing good poem is making the reader feel that the poet did not know where the poem was going to lead uh, lead her and and so uh, uh nonetheless despite all of these elements of instinct and uh, uh subconscious discovery there's also the process of deliberation and when translating uh, uh similarly but in the other direction although deliberation leads that's the first approach you know you you really are deciding how to get something right very consciously there are moments where you make a decision to phrase something in a certain way if it's a departure from the original and you don't know you cannot explain to yourself in the moment why it sounds right and that's exactly how poetry works as well you can't explain why this is right but you just know it your brain came up with something your mind came up with something that fits uh in mysterious ways uh the context and then later days later sometimes years later you'll look back and you'll be uh pleasantly surprised by the the uh, the the deeper meaning of what you put down on paper without knowing that it's wonderful lens wonderful lens 
Uh, tell us about your mentors, teachers, collaborators who have had a great impact on your literary life. Well, I would, I would. Um, there were three uh, collaborators, teachers who were most instrumental. I, the, 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 the first was Michael Henry Heim, who was a, a great translator from a, a, a very large number of languages into English. And um, very luckily, uh, when I was about, um, I would say, 16 years old, I was reading a, a, a major magazine in, in, in school. Uh, I think it was the New Republic. And there was a brief review of a work translated from a, a, from a, a Serbo-Croatian. What was at the time Serbo-Croatian? And uh, uniquely for the period, this was the 1990s, the name of the translator was right there in the review with a few complimentary words about the quality of the translation. At that time, many reviews of translated literature didn't even name the translator, much less say anything about the quality of the translation. But I was very impressed. It was the first time I had seen a translator's name in lights. And uh, and then I, I, I discovered that Michael Henry Heim happened to be teaching just 20 minutes away from my high school at UCLA. So I applied to UCLA with the uh, express purpose of working with Michael Henry Heim. I even wrote my admissions essay about translation and about uh, Heim in particular. And on the first day of classes, although I didn't have a class with him, I came to his office. I found his office. I knocked on the door. He 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 beckoned me inside. I I came inside uh, 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 his 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 room, and I was I was uh, very nervous. I was stuttering, just as you know, stuttering the way I am now. Uh, 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 tripping over my words. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm a translator. And as soon as he heard me say that I was, uh, that, that I was translating uh, already at that age, he, his eyes lit up and he asked me to show him what I had brought, my, my samples. He moved his chair to my side of the desk and we sat there for two hours looking over my translations. I was 18 years old. And of course, I was hooked from that moment on, you know, to be taken seriously as a young artist well, it just mean, meant the world to me. And uh, so he was very, very important for me for the first, um, uh, you know, five, six, seven years of my of my professional life. And then I was lucky enough to, uh, through correspondence, simply by sending a letter um, uh, out into the world to meet uh, uh, Robert Chandler, who became and, and still is, uh, you know, my most, you know, the central collaborator of my tra- translating life together. Uh, with the poet Irina Mashinsky, he and I edited the Penguin Book of Russian Poetry. This is something he didn't need to, you know, he didn't need to invite anyone to do it with him. But because of his uh, remarkable generosity and his remarkable commitment to the art, regardless of who the artist is behind the art, to talent, he'll he he will discern talent uh, without any prejudice. You know, uh, you could be twelve years old or you could be seventy years old, as long as you're doing good work. He will appreciate that work. So he saw something in my work, and 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 he drew me out and and involved me in his circle. And uh, I've I've been uh, a, a grateful satellite ever since. Um, uh, so we, we've been working together quite a lot. And continue to work together. The uh, the third uh, major mentor in my life is is the the, the great American poet Dana Joya, who um, uh, uh, also plucked me out of obscurity as a poet. Somebody I, I also met through correspondence when I was editing the LA Review of Books. He happened to submit something uh, that he needed to see published uh, um, rather quickly. If if I were to accept it, I both accepted it and made sure that it was published in the proper 
format. And, and, and then we began to correspond. And, and, uh, since then we've been, uh, in constant touch. Um, he, he's become a very close friend and, and is the, by far the most perceptive critic of, of, uh, poetry that, uh, that I've ever, uh, encountered. A person who can look at a, at a draft of a poem and ask just the right question to turn the poem around, to, to, to change, uh, the course of, of a poem. If it's, if it's taking a, uh, a, a tailspin, he will write the plane and make sure that, that the poem comes in, uh, for a good landing. Your stint as the editor of, uh, the LA Review of Books and, uh, you also worked at uh, Times Literary Supplement. Yes, I've been contributing for, I think, probably over 10 years now to, uh, or just about 10 years to the Times Literary uh, Supplement. And I, uh, and I was the, the editor in chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books for, for about six years. And, um, uh, both, uh, experiences, both on the editing desk and as a frequent contributor of reviews, um, uh, have taught me that, that, uh, good critical writing, uh, is, uh, as tightly constructed, as carefully built as a poem, you know, uh, especially when you're given a certain number of words to work with. If you're given an assignment to review a book at 400 words, you have to include a lot of information in a relatively tight space, but also not only choose the things that are worth saying, but to say them in a way that it doesn't feel like you're cramming the information into this tight space. So, uh, so the, the challenge of having flowing, artful prose, uh, relate a lot of vital information in a short space, uh, is uh, not unlike the challenge of, of, of writing a good poem. And, uh, I, I approach my, my reviews, although of course nobody reads reviews like they read poems, but I approach my reviews as, as a, 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 a poetic challenge. Parameters for reviewing translation, uh, will it anyway differ from, uh, you know, parameters for reviewing an original? Uh, the, the reviewing translations, you, you, you know, usually what, what, uh, what I do is I treat for most of the review, I treat both translations and original texts, quad texts. I, I, I treat them for, for, for what they are, for what I have in front of me. But then when, if, but yes, but if it, but if it happens to be a translation and I, especially if I speak the other language, then I do try to say something about the quality of the translation and even perhaps look closely at, um, uh, the original text, uh, to, to make, make, you know, some comments about, about the, the, the decisions that the translator made. And, uh, in, in cases where it's a, a, a retranslation, that's even more interesting because then I, what I do is I try to read the original, but also the preceding translations and judge the decisions that both of these translators or all three of these translators have made, uh, and why the new translation either, you know, succeeds or, 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 or doesn't quite succeed. No, for a reader like me, uh, probably who never uh, gets to read the original because I won't be knowing the languages anyway. Uh, so the, you know, it's a standalone text for us, right? When we, so there is no way we can, uh, uh, understand whether the book failed because of the translation or because of the original that we can we'll never be able to judge is it possible actually you know what you should do is you should just judge the the, the book in front of you read it as if you were reading an original uh, because 
you will see things in it if you read it that way that are either successful or unsuccessful. Just we just the other day I was recommending a book and I and I I'm not going to say which book it is, but it was a translation. And I was reading this translation um, just to to see whether I could recommend it. And without even looking at the original, I knew that 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 something had gone terribly wrong on the first page and you know there, it just it just didn't make it just it just didn't make any sense you know it, it didn't hang together and i think it i think uh you know okay it's possible that the original is also nonsensical but chances are if you see something that is a glaring logical error or uh, a, a word uh you know misused in an unproductive way then the problem is with the, the translation of the original you teach russian literature yes right now i'm actually teaching english and creative writing uh so mostly creative writing courses but i have taught uh, russian literature before and i plan to teach it again basically teaching you are into teaching literature right yes so you must have had some interesting experiences uh, interacting with youngsters yes i have can you narrate a couple of them well i'll tell you i'll tell you one experience that has stuck in my mind as as a um a, a marker uh on my on my journey my my professional journey um in in Los Angeles I have a very close friend who's now in his 90s named Oscar Mandel and uh, he's a poet and, and a longtime um he, a great writer uh and a uh, a both nonfiction and and fables and plays and he's also a um a longtime professor of literature at, at Caltech um when I was a very young instructor when I was a graduate student Uh, I I reached out to him and uh, uh we uh, you know struck up a friendship and uh every other week or every three weeks we would gather in Westwood which was the the uh area around UCLA where I went to, to school uh we would gather uh for lunch uh get together for lunch and uh uh we usually had lunch at a, a diner where no one else ate it was a completely empty restaurant and it was it was very cozy and convenient to be the only customers at this diner and one day uh when i was in my third or fourth year of teaching um i was having lunch with oscar and uh telling him how important his friendship was to me and how much i had learned from him and at that very moment a student uh seemingly out of nowhere came out uh, uh of some booth and approached ours and uh uh said i remember your class to me uh i i i'm still thinking about that poem we read together and trying to figure it out and i really really appreciate your planting something in my head that i'm still thinking about and uh and he thanked me for 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 for, for the class and said it was one of his favorite classes and um to have oscar witness that was for me a Uh, a wonderful moment because it was a passing of the torch you know it was uh, two generations two generations of teachers and two generations of students yeah absolutely you are reading you are reading and translation reading of books and translation how interdependent are they uh, my, my reading and well now because i have a uh, uh, twins and and they're very uh, active uh, and demand a lot of time uh i don't get to read as much as i as i used to uh and and so right now my reading and my translation are very very closely uh dependent because i i tend to read what i'm translating uh, uh and very little else although i try um i uh, i start a lot of things but don't finish a lot of things uh and um 
but but generally speaking, I've always I've always plucked uh, from my reading material uh, like a like a magpie. I've always collected phrases and idioms and uh, syntactic patterns that I thought might come in useful, uh, might come in handy uh, when translating. And so everything I read, I read uh, with a kind of mercenary eye, looking for things I can use later. Prose versus poetry translation. Do you approach them differently? Not especially, no. I, I think that um, uh, what what translating poetry has taught me uh, that that is, uh, in fact, um, very useful when translating prose, because I translate largely um, metrical poetry, poetry with with you know rhyme and and a meter. Um, I am forced to uh, take certain liberties in order to get at the um, uh, both the music as well as the sense of the original. So, uh, by, 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 uh, virtue of the, of the, of the, uh, resistance of the material, virtue of the, of the fact that I'm working with, uh, to, to try to fit a very tight structure, I, I am forced to take, uh, to take liberties. And that is very freeing. It, 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 um, has taught me that Sometimes one has to depart quite a long ways in order to get something right in the English. Uh, uh, and, uh, I bring that same attitude to the prose. Uh, instead of being slavish, instead of making sure that every word in the English is placed exactly where the word in the Russian or the Ukrainian is placed, I'm able to look at the whole picture and decide how to craft a sentence in English, regardless of where the words go. Uh, that that communicates uh, in a in a better way the, the the message of the original. When we compare Russian and English while translating it, this departure from the original, there is bound to be some departure, right? In some sense. Yes, bound. There is bound to be. Yes. Language-wise, uh, from Russian to English, where are they going to occur most? So I, I think that syntax is 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 where they're going to occur most. I think that there are some translators of Russian uh, prose and Ukrainian prose who adhere very closely to the syntax of the original. But I feel that that is uh, it, it may work at, uh, sometimes, but 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 very often uh, it 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 has the opposite effect. Instead of producing the same emphases, it actually changes. The, the the meaning and changes the emphasis uh, because uh, you know uh, the most important words in the, in a sentence of Russian the most important word may be at the end of a sentence not at the beginning and in English the most important words can be at the beginning of the sentence rather than at the end and uh, we know how to read these sentences in in whatever language in which we're reading them we know where to look for the important words we know where the rhythm takes us it either takes us up or it takes us down. So if you're if you're transposing a sentence from Russian into English, uh, it may look like the words are arranged in the same way, but the rhythmic pattern of the words is completely backwards. One of the things that you said, while translating, you have to respond emotionally to text, not intellectually. I think that if you fall in love with a text, if you if it if it has an effect on you if it if it changes the way you feel about yourself about the world uh if it produces an effect on you uh, of that kind uh then you are going to be 
more committed uh, to to translating that work. Uh, and also, you're going to be uh, attending to uh, the effect of your translation rather than just the the words on the page. You're going to be conscious of the fact that the original moved you in some deep way, and your aim will be to move readers in that same way. So what you'll be attending to is not just um, uh, you know some kind of uh, fidelity on the page, but fidelity to the to the experience of encountering the work. Now we will come to the book on Cravies. It's very, very entertaining. Entertaining in the sense, uh, you won't get to stop anywhere. Maybe a single sitting or two sittings, you would like to finish the book. That is the first, first part of it. That is the power of the way it is constructed, the beautifully constructed. Not much of action there, right? No. It's more of, uh, you know, contemplation of the uh, narrator. <laughs> That's Sergevich. now the on the other hand once while you are reading the book and also once you finish it it is a multi layered uh, text in fact my reaction as a reader yes when he is talking about uh, the title grabies i think he is talking about the whole humanity not just the narrator and the other uh, characters there in fact i was mentioning to you the other day we interviewed uh, dr hamid ismailo he coined a wonderful uh, phrase which i have never heard before called fluid identity mm-hmm. see in a sense we don't have any strict identity any mm. if you take me i have different different identities yes so when you finish the book you start thinking really should we have an identity will it cause more uh, you know distress So all the wars that we are seeing right now, currently, right? Yes. They are all about identifying yourself with the land, identifying yourself with the language. That's a very, very, very uh, provocative and interesting idea, and I, I, I appreciate it very much. I, I think that Andre set about writing this book precisely because he wants to uh, put uh, on the page uh, the experience of people who. do not see themselves as anything other than who they are in the place where they are they don't think of themselves in in, in reference to meta narratives and big narratives about uh, the 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 direction of history or the of national boundaries they think of themselves as living at a certain house on a certain street in a certain village that's their identity and they 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 find meaning in their daily chores their daily encounters with the world and um uh those people unfortunately um are often the ones who si- suffer silently when uh, uh when people come through with their big narratives trying to impose one or the other i i know what you're saying and you know to me when when you look at the suffering of the people in gaza when you look when you uh, or, or you know when you look at the suffering of any people who did not who who are too young to have chosen any path in life uh or who never really gave much thought to uh anything other than their daily uh struggle to survive and to to have to have some joy with their family or to do their jobs well when those people get swept up in these uh in these conflicts uh it can't help but but break your heart but you know so few of those people uh have voices those are not the loudest voices in the room 
they're not the voices that, that we hear. The voices that are amplified generally are the voices of political re- leaders or fanatics on either side. So we hear constant barrage of fanaticism and constant barrage of, of, uh, uh, you know, dogmatic purity here, there, and everywhere. Um, uh, but, but we, we, we really, you know, shouldn't lose sight of the people who don't have strong feelings one way or the other. They're simply victim, being victimized by these, these larger forces. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of people displaced in any country. You know, there are two, several million people in Ukraine were driven out. I don't think that any of those people were expecting a war. They didn't care for the war. The war came and found them. And I think, I think the people who are being displaced from their homes in, in, in Gaza, you know, they, they didn't ask for this and, and, uh, it was it was brought to them. I don't I don't really care who brought it to them. Uh, I, I I'm I'm much more horrified by what has been brought. The author Andrei Kurkov. Interestingly, his mother tongue is Russian, and he writes in Russian. And uh, this book is about uh, you know suffering in Ukraine because of the Russian Russian intervention. Uh, please tell us about Andrei Kurkov and uh, other works and as a writer. Yes. Well, Andrei is, is, is definitely one of my favorite writers and, and one of the, the writers to whom I feel closest uh, as, as spiritually. And, you know, we don't see the world exactly the same way, but I always learn something from him. And uh, I don't think anyone sees the world exactly the way he sees it. Yes, he he's a truly, he has a truly original eye. And, um, uh, I've come to know his work very well because uh, this is not the first book that I've translated of his. I very much hope it's not the last. In fact, the two more books of his I've, I've already translated. They're, they're going to be published next year and the year after that. And um, uh, uh, Andrei was indeed born in, in Russia, but he grew up in Ukraine. He uh, uh, started writing during the Soviet period, but he didn't really begin to publish until after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So his career was very much a Ukrainian career in independent Ukraine. And Ukraine was, you know, a, a bilingual country. It remains a bilingual country. The, the position of Russian uh, culturally has, of course, shrunk and been sidelined by this current invasion, which is ironic because, of course, the whole plan uh, on, on the part of Putin was to protect the Russian speakers. But the people who suffer most, in fact, are the Russian speakers, the, te- the regions that, that have faced the, the most bombardment are regions populated by people who, for whom Russian is, is probably their, their, their most uh, com- commonly used language. And uh, uh, Andrei was, was uh, uh, you know, um, po- uh, politically and uh, in terms of his daily affiliation, a, a Ukrainian person. He sees himself as a Ukrainian citizen. He, his life is tied up with the life of Ukraine. And his works are about Ukraine. Nonetheless, the language in which he uh, thinks creatively is Russian. It's the language in which he feels most comfortable creating text. And and so he's not, un- unlike some other authors who have switched to Ukrainian, he's going to stick with Russian for at least the time being because it's the language in which he feels he can create with most freedom. Uh, you know, our, our, that's how our minds work. There is one language that dominates, and, and it's, it's the language in which we can be most creative. And, and, and for fun, that's Russian. Now, there are uh, 
certain things in the book uh, when he talks about uh, silence the description of silence it is such a powerful writing oh yes i agree those the, the way he differentiates between, between different kinds of silences you know because silence is is, is what we accepted to be in a war in a war zone you know silence is a different character from the silence of let's say uh, a summertime field where the silence is filled with all kinds of buzzing of insects and the rustling of leaves and during the war the silence may be filled with distant gunfire and uh, so it's a uh, silence has has different meanings uh, in different contexts and in spite of the shelling that is going on yes exactly exactly it becomes background noise and again uh, sergevich uh, not having a calendar to look at because what's the point life just drags on you know he is only worried about you know light coming in and light going out uh, that's the only thing matters to him exactly exactly uh, you know without saying much you know by writing these things uh, he was able to just uh, you know make you feel as a reader you really feel it right you don't have to say anything about it there are these little details experiential details yeah and again about the food also it's very interesting you know the way we you know food it, it describes a lot about maybe he's a foodie i don't know yeah oh he 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 certainly likes a good meal who doesn't Yeah. No, he's yes. But he does he does he he puts he puts a lot of love into his descriptions of especially the Tatar cuisine and the borscht. Yeah, yeah. Again, he not only about the language, you know, divide the, the language creates uh divide the land creates. And he also talks about religious practices especially in the third uh, part of the book. Absolutely it's a it's a, a, a you know it's it's not a, an ethnography it's just these are real characters who happen to come from a real place and from a, a distinct culture and and I think he 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 captures that very well that culture very well and of course Tatars are facing uh, enormous discrimination right now and are being arrested and, and kidnapped uh, to Russia and, and put on trial and sentenced uh, to um, very long terms for for doing absolutely nothing I don't know whether it is ancient intentional or not uh, there is a dish called samsa. Yes. Well it actually exists but but I know that there's a ca- kind of a Kafkaesque uh a uh, 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 semi reference but it actually does exist the dish does exist there like little stuffed uh, you know, stuffed uh, pastries and uh, uh very common in central asian cuisine and in tatar cuisine but but um but of course i think those you know those little uh uh coincidences uh are uh very typical of ande he likes to sneak in his illusions sideways you know yeah so th- there is something very kafkaesque about sir gage's existence of course yes 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 and uh, one of the inspectors he named him as uh, <laughs> ivan karmazov <laughs> Yeah, Ivan Fyodorovich. Ivan Fyodorovich. Yes, yes. Well, yes, and and I th- I think that you know since since the start of the war, uh, uh, the there has been a move to, uh, not necessarily rid Ukraine entirely of everything to do with Russia, but certainly to lower the place that Russian authors have occupied in the canon in Ukraine because 
those authors were imposed from above, and Dostoevsky is one of those authors. Now, however, Andre Andre understands, uh, you know, Andre understands the 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 the, the quality of of uh, Dostoevsky's work, of Tolstoy's work, and all of this. He's not he's not a, a a fanatic who's never going to touch anything Russian again. But during the war, uh, you know, the, uh, authors can be, especially dead authors, can be used as weapons of war. Uh, you know, people start competing. Well, our authors are better than your authors. What did you ever do? That's anything, you know, like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy. And, and so Andrei makes, uh, one of the characters in Dostoevsky, who is the most logical of the brothers, he makes him an FSB agent. I think that's quite nice. And now I don't, I'm not even sure he intended to do it, but I think it works very nicely. Yeah. Now, before uh, um, we end the conversation, please read a paragraph in English from the book. So this is this is a passage I, I really love, uh, which sees Sidgage for the first time leading his 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 native village. He left behind him a war in which he had taken no part, in which he had simply happened to have found himself dwelling. Yes, he had been a resident of war, an unenviable fate, but one far more bearable for people than for bees. If it weren't for the bees, he wouldn't have gone anywhere. He would have taken pity on Pashka and not left him all alone. But bees don't understand what war is. Bees can't switch from peace to war and back again as people do. They must be allowed to perform their main task, the only task in their power to which they were appointed by nature and by God, collecting and spreading pollen. That's why he had to go, to drive them out to where it was quiet, where the air was gradually filling with the sweetness of blossoming herbs, where the choir of these herbs would soon be supported by the choir of flowering cherry, apple, apricot, and acacia trees. At the next checkpoint, he was held up for three minutes, no longer. All they did was look at his passport and the piece of paper he had been issued with. Then he stopped twice more in response to warning signs of increased road control. There too, everything went smoothly. And two hours later, his headlights picked out a large sign on the side of the road. You are now entering the Zaporizhia region. There was nothing particularly cheerful in these words. They didn't promise to fulfill some secret childhood dream or anything. But as soon as the sign was behind him, tears welled up in Sikage's eyes, as if a great weight had fallen from his shoulders. He glanced down at his speedometer and pressed the brake pedal again. Don't rush, he told himself, and stared with tired eyes at the deserted road which was well lit by his high beams and bordered on both sides by apricot trees, the usual companions of southern Ukrainian drivers, beside which, in two or three months, anyone who wasn't too lazy or had no other gifts for their kids would stop on their way home. They would stop and pick up ripe orange apricots from the grass, three in a bag or a cardboard box, and one in the mouth. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, Boris. Thank you, Daniel. This is wonderful.